Welcome to those online. I hope I don't have to say this too many more times, but if I go blurry or something weird happens online, we just have some weird stuff going on. So just listen to the sound of my voice. It's the word of God that's important, not the picture of me, trust me. <laughs> blurry may be preferred, actually. Um, we're in the final three weeks of our series on Colossians, and uh, it, uh, there's some new life group material. I had written some of the weeks ahead of time, and I had to catch up, and so if you are in a life group, there's new material for the final three weeks for you to pick up, both as leaders and participants. You can pick that up in the lobby, and that will take you through next week and then on to May 1st when we will be finished, uh, Colossians. Um, I'm not speaking, because we're in our series on Colossians, I'm not speaking specifically on Palm Sunday today. Uh, I'm just going to continue into Colossians 3, 12 to 17, following uh, Chris's message last week. And I was away at a family wedding, and I feel slightly bad about the assignment that I gave Chris, because it was a very difficult task for a preacher to preach. Chris, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sure it was a good experience for him, and he grew out of it. But what I did, and this is, this is what you may not have realized, is I asked him to preach on putting off or putting to death what is worldly. Remember that. And he did an amazing job on that. Uh, but he was not allowed to then move on to verses 12 to 17 to talk about what we then put on. That was cruel. <laughs> he just had to talk about all the bad stuff, and I preserved for myself the positive <laughs> message that I get to preach on today. But I felt he did a really, really good job of drawing out the implications of, to both non-Christians and Christians of putting our identity in our behavior or our desires, that we identify ourselves and our personhood is based on what we want to do or what our passions are, or temporal realities like gender or race or class. And so many dysfunctions exist in society and in our own internal souls when our identity is so badly misplaced, or when we take it upon ourselves to be like God ourselves and determine our identity apart from what the Creator has granted us. And Chris did a great job on that. The God who created us knows us. He knows what will guard us from the destruction of sin and knows how He designed us to flourish. And God's love towards us in regards to that results in new birth and new creation and new self based on true knowledge, and a restoration of our lost or distorted image-bearing of God, our image-bearing of the Creator that was intended for us from the very beginning of time. And verse 10 said that about our image-bearing of creating. Now Paul moves ahead into verses 12 to 17 to contrast our old, false, destructive, and misplaced identities with what is renewed and true and restorative. And contrast is an important theme for this morning's message. Scripture is the mirror that we hold ourselves up to, and in fact, the mirror that we hold our whole culture up to, and compare our reflection to the mirror of Scripture. And verses 12 to 17 is a call to live counterculturally, not just in Paul's day, but perhaps even to a greater degree in the 21st century. 
The Jews and the Greeks of Paul's day and in the city of Colossae almost certainly never heard the term expressive individualism. But that is exactly what verses 5 to 11 that Chris preached on were describing. Everyone living for their own desires, feeding their own appetites, grasping at their own identities, even at the expense of others. Well, I doubt they could have imagined just how far humanity could follow that path. They could not fathom the kind of technology we would develop to hone and perfect our ability to express our individualism completely apart from anyone else, any truth, any biology, even any physical body. In today's modern age, we have the medical procedures, the drugs, the digital technology, the social media, and if Zuckerberg has his way, we have the metaverse to condition us to be isolated, expressive individuals, to seduce us away from real community, and to disengage our identity from any and all image-bearing of God that may remain, even maybe the image-bearing of just physical humanity. And that's a serious problem. That's the problem we face. It's the problem that Paul is describing, not in ways he could have ever imagined we would face them today, but in which they faced in their day as well, because it is the human condition. We deny our image bearing of the Creator, and we desire to remake our identity in our own image, the image we want. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to read the text together, recognizing that God intends what Paul writes here to be a curative. It is a contrast. It is a counter-cultural and counter-intuitive call to a new identity that flourishes in what I will call analog embodied communal submission. And that stands, it makes a great title to a thesis paper, doesn't it? It just needs a colon and then some sort of description. But analog embodied communal submission stands in contrast to digital disembodied individual autonomy. And that is what God wants to fix. So this is a beautiful section of text. I gave Chris the ugly section of text. I get the beautiful section of text. It's beautiful in its writing. It's beautiful in the truths that it carries about our identity. It's beautiful in describing the kind of community that God's love calls us into and asks of us. And as I read it, I just want you to let the beauty of these commands land on you, and then we will unpack them. And I will pray just before we read God's word. Father God, again, as we come as your people to look at your word, we recognize that your word is true, but it's also beautiful and it's loving, and it's compassionate. And so as we read your word now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, take the scales away from our eyes, lift any darkness that is on our hearts, clear away any distraction or distortion from our culture, our tradition, our heritage. And Father, that we would just see and understand what you call us into, a new life, a new creation together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Colossians three twelve to 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now remember, Paul has written that beautiful passage to stand in contrast to verses 5 to 11. Uh, Verses 5 to 11 describe the kind of hostile disunity that arises from self-identity and self-worship. In in the text, if you remember last week, he calls it idolatry. It's literally self-worship. And it's in contrast to individual autonomy in the pursuit of selfish desires. Again, if you remember last week's text, Paul uses words like passion and covetousness and evil desire to get that across. So, Paul says there's all of this individual, passion, desire-driven kind of activity that I am now telling you what the alternative is to, the contrast is to. And Paul, as I said, didn't have a neat little title for it in his day, and it was probably expressed in the culture a little bit differently, but that kind of philosophy of living for the self, for our passion, for our desire itself is most frequently in our culture called expressive individualism. And expressive individualism holds that every person, oh, it all comes at once, holds that every person has their own unique internal core of feeling or intuition and self that must be realized or expressed in order to be their true self or to be satisfied or to be complete. You must express yourself. You have to just be who you are. And the slogans of our culture that emerge from expressive individualism, you will immediately recognize You be you, be your true self, follow your heart, find yourself, live your truth. Anybody recognize any of these? This is our culture. And Trevin Wax gives a helpful summary of the early history of American expressive individualism, and it starts with um, a Frenchman, actually, Alex de Tocqueville, who wrote the classic Democracy in America at the very beginning of the 1800s. We're talking around the 1830s, 1840s. And he writes in the Democracy in America this, his observation. Individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends. With this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after himself. This is in 1830, okay? This is the beginning of expressive individualism. It's not expressive yet, it's just individualism. The expressive part hasn't materialized, but the root of the kind of tree that North American culture would grow into has already been planted. And the maturing of individualism into expressive individualism, I think, was probably stunted or paused three times. In the late 1800s, you have the American Civil War. Then you have the Great War, uh, 1910 to 15. And then you have a Second World War, uh, 1935 to 45. 
Um, and so three big wars basically kind of delayed the expressive emergence of individualism, but it was there just waiting. But then with almost half a century or more than half a century now of peace and prosperity, you think about the 50s and 60s and 70s on into the 90s and now the 2000s, the expressive element comes into full swing in North America with the advent of new media technology, radio, television, modern music, artistic expression, political expression, and of course the internet and social media, we are given the means and the freedom to now express our individualism to everyone else. And as far as an individual living in a society, Yuval Lenin writes in the early 2000s in his books, The Fractured Republic, the term expressive individualism suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, that's what Alec de Tocqueville noticed, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It's a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in a society by fully asserting who you are. That's the expressive part of individualism. It's not good enough that I can just be me. I got to let you know who I am. And the not-so-subtle irony is, is that everybody else is also doing that at the same time. So the expressive part is now here in our society in full measure, as I said, likely in a way that Paul and the Colossians never could have imagined. It's not enough that you define your own identity or your own feeling, your own sense of self. You will not feel completely actualized until you express or assert your identity into those people around you while everyone else is doing the same thing. The key element of expressive individualism is summarized in the purpose of life being to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world forging that identity in ways that counter whatever tradition, family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or religious authorities might try to oppose on you. You must resist all of those things and assert yourself. And in summarizing it that way, you may have noticed I've just outlined the plot summary of almost every Disney movie made since 1985. Don't be unaware that our culture is indoctrinating our kids. You be you. Live your dreams. Follow your heart. From the time they're three years old on, this is what they are told they will find their identity in. If you've seen the latest movie, Red, I think it's called, about the panda who gets angry a lot, at the end of the movie, basically, it's you just be you, even if you're angry. Angry is who you are, and sometimes you just have to be angry, and people just have to accept your anger. Don't, don't try to control yourself. Just you be you. But it expresses itself through Disney and other means many different ways. It's the cultural air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. This is why I'm emphasizing it, because we have to be aware of it. We've all been affected by it. Now, there's just a couple of key implications that emerge from this in the very modern or current age of expressive individualism, and I'm posing the problem before Scripture solves it. We're going to get to the text. Don't worry. And what I mean is, in the last 10 or 15 years, with the rise and dominance of social media and the Internet as almost the perfect tools for amplifying this particular philosophy, 
I draw these two implications out because I want to compare them to the counterintuitive, countercultural space that God calls us to. And that's why the framework for these points that I make is to note that expressive individualism today is digital, meaning that in the same way that there's a distinct separation from one bit of data to another bit of data in a computer, there is a divide between one person and the next. I am completely me, and you are completely you, and there's no real connection between us. We are just individual bits of people all strung together, eight or and a half or nine billion bits on the planet. So we're digital. It's also disembodied. More and more, our interactions in modern expressive individualism take place not just over the end of a phone line, but through a screen. I don't see you. I see your avatar, your photoshopped picture that is a vague representation of you that you've modified to be the perfect version of you. It's carefully cropped and curated to make sure it represents your self-actualized identity. No blemishes, no extra weight, and the dress you could never afford or the suit you would never fit into. In a video game, I interact with your digital character online in discussions and in dialogue while we try to talk to each other. I interact only with lines of text and emojis. And Zuckerberg actually changed the name of Facebook's parent company to Meta because he imagines a future metaverse where everyone interacts through digital representations of themselves in virtual space. This is where our society goes to perfectly self-actualize. We will then be free, so to speak, of any image bearing of God or even of humanity. We can recreate ourselves completely in our own image. And it's also individual for all the reasons that we've already talked about in terms of expressive individualism, my self-identity is the most important thing. And it is wholly about autonomy. Our liberty, everything about this cultural air we breathe is about our liberty, to define everything for ourselves. And that can never be violated. No one can violate our right to define for ourselves who we are, how we will live, and what we will see and do and even participate in. Paradoxically, even the freedom from ourselves being exposed to anything that might infringe on our identity, even though we must express that identity and culture and we expect everybody else to be expressing it, we have this weird paradox where I also feel like I'm free from anything that offends me or that contradicts me. Well, in a digital, disembodied, individual, autonomous culture, there are a couple of, of, of implications, very brief, that I will just touch on. The first one is, my story, my truth. In the digital age of expressive individualism, my experience, my narrative is superior to truth, to authority. That means to suggest to someone that their personal narrative may be relevant, but not authoritative, is taken as an assault on their identity. It also means that online influencers who share their narrative, their experiences, of their invented, curated, pretend, fictional life have a far greater impact on shaping the worldview of our children and teenagers and ourselves than actual truth or facts do. In other words, other narratives, other stories that I resonate with online are more valuable to me than facts about what is actually real in terms of how I should live. Influencers have more impact, and that's why they're called influencers, 
They have more impact as disembodied, distant storytellers than the flesh and blood embodied families and community that God has placed us in. We will listen to a curated, fake image stranger on the internet before we'll listen to our mom or dad or our uncle or the person in the seat beside us at church. Social media and the metaverse frame everything as narrative, but also narrative that is disembodied from real people, which just further emphasizes and wires our brain to believe that we also exist apart from our physical bodies and apart from our analog communities, as if whatever this is doesn't matter, and whoever you are don't matter as much as whatever that connection to the narrative is. So the first implication is simply that my personal story is a superior authority to truth. And then secondly, we find in our present age of expressive individualism, anything that makes me uncomfortable should not exist. The disembodied digital individual autonomous age allows us to skim and to scroll and to scan past anything. Anyone ever catch themselves on Facebook just skim, 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 or on Reddit, or on Instagram, or on Twitter, just skim, 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 skim. The technology that they developed a few years ago is that page is endless. It never ends. Reddit goes on forever. Pinterest goes on forever. Twitter goes on forever. You can scroll for hours. It will always keep loading another thing. They don't want it to stop until some dopamine reaction in your brain sees something that triggers and you stop because in your brain, I agree with that. I want more of that. I'll get a little bit more because I agree. Don't, no, 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 no. But this training in our culture bears no resemblance to anything like verse 13 today, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, because we just skim past everything that offends us. And if skimming isn't enough, we block it, or we filter it, or we curate it out so that we don't even see that person or see that comment. They don't exist. Anything that makes us uncomfortable should not exist in our digital worlds. I'm starting to shift now to our text, but I want us to be able to see that the air that we are breathing and wake up and recognize the water that we are swimming in, understand that even things like the technology we use and the philosophies behind them are counter to the biblical lives we are called to live. In this case, the ability to curate and to filter and to choose the reality we are exposed to cripples our ability to follow the very biblical commands that call us to live counterculturally and counterintuitively with people, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, hearing things that are not what we want to hear, but living together anyway. So by contrast now, consider our text. Not digital, disembodied, individualistic autonomy, but analog, embodied, communal submission. And I'm just going to read the text again after all of that problem posing so that the power of the Word of God can wash away all that digital, individualistic autonomy and cleanse us from error and dysfunction of the world and transform our minds so that we can put on the identity and community that God would call us to out of his love for us, because of his good intentions for us. Let's just read it again now, in contrast. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, the identity and life that God calls us to for our flourishing and his glory is not digital, but analog. Before CDs and MP3s and before Spotify and Sirius XM, music used to come to our ears via a vibrating needle that ran around the groove of a plastic record dish. It was amplified by electrons that traveled on wires in vacuum tubes, not as signals in silicon chips. In an analog world, everything is still connected. In fact, even with digital music, for us to even make sense of digital music, you know what they have to do? They got to put it back into analog by vibrating a magnet on a speaker. You got to take digital music and make it analog again, or we don't even understand it. We were never meant to be digital. The notes of music are not individual beeps and boops. The instruments and voices all flow together, and if you graph them out, they're not dots and lines, but they are waves on a spectrograph. And Paul says that our identities are not digital. We're not just individuals separated from each other, but we are, he says in verse 12, God's chosen ones. We all have a connected identity in God, in Jesus. We were never meant to be alone as one digital bit out of nine billion bits or nine gigabits of humans on earth. We are holy and beloved, and to be beloved means you need a connection to at least one other bit. But God says we're not only connected to each other and beloved by each other, but we are beloved by Him. We are connected. We're not just analog, we are embodied. We are bodies that form a body. And Paul stretches here a bunch of one another's and each other and says that we're all individuals, yes, but our identity is, our identity is still important, but we exist together in verse 15. He says, we were called in one body. We are all bodies that form a body. And the Bible teaches over and over the importance of the physical body. We are embodied souls. God made our bodies. Even before the fall and sin entered into the world, God's plan was for us to be in bodies. And we are going to keep our bodies for eternity, not these fallen bodies, but glorified bodies. The Bible celebrates the physical reality of God's creation and us as bodies in creation. We bodily are image bearers of God. And any philosophy or any technology that disembodies us, that disassociates our identity from our physical bodies, whether that's race, gender, ability, disability, height, weight, language, whatever, it's running counter to God's created order and plan. We must interact with each other and with our own selves and with God as bodies, embodied souls, or else we lose something that is inherent to our flourishing, inherent to our image-bearing of God, and inherent to our glorifying of God. We're analog, and we are embodied. We cannot deny this. But we are also not individualistic, but communal. We are individuals, but we are not 
individualistic. Our identity is not our highest authority, nor our highest identity. This beautiful description of our new identity in Christ is an unapologetically communal description. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, putting on love, which verse 14 says, binds everyone together in perfect harmony. Oh, harmony, there's that music analogy again. We're bound together in unity, in harmony, in community, interacting with each other, and most importantly, interacting with each other's differences. Do you see how Paul preserves the individualism within community? We are individuals in community. We must be individuals in community because he says right away, you are going to have to forgive one another. You're all going to have different ideas about some things, and you're going to have to bear with one another. You know that annoying sarcasm that Paul uses all the time, Pastor Paul? Yeah, you just got to bear with that sarcasm because he's going to do it. You know when he messes things up and, you know, forgets to send you a card or something, you're going to have to forgive him. So Paul says here we are in community. We are individuals, but we are communal, interacting with each other's differences. Individuality in Christianity or let me phrase it this way. In Christianity, it would be a mistake to think that just because we all put on Christ and just because we're all going to be glorified and become more like Christ, that somehow we lose our individual identity. Christianity is not a religion that says we all just get called up into some transcendent Gaia universal force thing. There are other religions that say that. There are other religions that say we all lose our identity and we just sort of get absorbed into the cosmic oneness. That is not the oneness that Christianity preaches or that is real. I will be able to recognize you in heaven, and unfortunately, you'll be able to recognize me. But you'll be thrilled because I'll have my glorified body. (laughs) And it'll be nothing like this one. I don't know. It'll be like Superman or something. But we will recognize each other. We will still be us. We will have our individuality, but we express it in community. We express it not in an assertive way, not in a forceful way, not demanding that you recognize my identity and my liberty and my autonomy, as we touched on a few weeks ago, but we assert our identity submissively, bearing with one another and forgiving one another communally together. Because the highest expression of ourselves is not our autonomy and our self-expression, it is our submission The highest expression of love is being willing to submit to the needs and the desires of those around us. Love is submission. What is supposed to rule us? In expressive individualism, we rule, we determine, we follow our hearts no matter what anyone else tells us. But in verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You know what that means? It means our hearts need a ruler. Do not, I repeat, do not let your heart rule you. And I understand perfectly well that for a lot of you, what I just said sounds like literal blasphemy. But just digest that thought for a moment. It does sound blasphemous in our culture. It sounds heretical to our secular religion of our age. To say, do not trust your heart, (gasps) but it's true. Neither Disney nor Oprah are good authorities on spiritual matters. 
Don't trust your heart implicitly. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, especially in untransformed and unsanctified hearts. But even in our Christian hearts, we can find deception. We are still touched by our sinful nation, nature. We are still distorted. And so what we do is we hold our hearts up to the mirror of Scripture and we pass the things our hearts whisper to us through the filter of God's Word in order to confirm what is the will of God, what is true, because our story, our narrative, our experiences are distorted by a fallen world, by the sin of others and the sin of our own flesh. So we cannot trust our story and our narrative. It is not a trustworthy guide. Our story is not our truth. We submit to the rule of Christ in our heart, and Christ is the Word of God. And we also submit to each other. Look at verse 12 and 13. We are compassionate, kind, humble, and meek, and that shapes our interactions. Not assertive, expressive, individualistic. Rather, we bear with each other and forgive each other. This is the counter-cultural, counter-intuitive self we are called to live out. We love our enemies. We die to self. We forgive debts, not demand payment. We confess our sin. We forgive the sin of others. We even turn the other cheek in a culture where slapping a cheek receives an ovation and applause. That is not the Christian way. That is not the way that God calls us and Paul calls us by the Holy Spirit to. We are analog, embodied, communal, submissive in our culture. And that's beautiful. Remember I said this text is beautiful. When you read that, you sense the beauty in it. That God is calling us out to something where we can flourish together. Well, as I said, this is the opposite of the air we breathe in our culture. The opposite of this is the water we swim in every day. It's impossible for anyone to leave this room today and say, it hasn't affected me, you know, I'm not one of those expressive individualistic people. I never follow my heart or my desires or my passions. I'm telling you right now, it's impossible that you are not affected by this. It is literally the air you breathe and have been breathing almost your whole life. So what we need to do then as Christians is what no, almost nobody else in our culture will do any time in their life, let alone on a weekly basis. What we need to do, what sets us apart, is we will leave here today holding our lives up to the mirror of Scripture, and we will ask ourselves difficult, soul-searching questions. How deeply have I breathed this air? How aware am I of the water I am swimming in? Am I out there online or even just in the church lobby making sure my opinion is heard, that I get my way, that everyone knows I've entered the room or entered the Zoom? Have I brought have I bought into this notion that I am only going to feel fully actualized and realized if I express myself and people just accept me the way I am? How aware am I of the water that our culture swims in? Do I reject the identity that I was born into? Am I the kind of person that rejects the family, the culture, the gender, the traditions, the age, maybe even the faith I was born into, as if God doesn't know the identity I should have? Is it tempting to just want to decide for myself, to recreate myself in my own image? Am I unhappy with who God has made me and he did a bad job and I need to fix it? Rather than seek to be the image bearer that God made me and to flourish in the place where he planted me, 
How deeply has that philosophy penetrated your life? Do you trust your heart on all matters and feel the best expression of my satisfaction is in following my heart wherever it leads? And do I just expect people to accept my truth no matter what it's based on? And if they don't affirm me, then they must hate me. Why do I even assume that I'm actually equipped to know what the truth is? I mean, how long have you been alive in this world? 15 years? 50 years? Wow. I think some people may have found some truth before you did. Do I have a, or do I have a humble approach to truth? And do I listen more than I speak? And do I read scripture more than I write on Facebook? For every 10 words you write on Facebook, you should read 100 words of scripture. Okay, make it like a 10 to 1 ratio. Your Facebook posts will improve. Mine have. I mean, I just post pictures of, you know, family and make funny jokes. That's about as far as I go on Facebook. (laughs) What rules my heart and my life? Is it personal autonomy? Is that the highest authority? Or is it the rule of Christ? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It goes against everything our society says. It goes against even what our flesh says. But this is the beautiful, analog, embodied, communal, submissive life that God calls us into. Notice Paul starts out saying that we put on this countercultural identity together. As God's chosen ones who let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and worshiping and rejoicing together. In other words, just notice that this whole text says that we do this together. We're meant to actually live this communal life communally. And I finish with that because that's our vision for Lakeside. That in this counterculture right here in this room and online, those that are watching, that's the counterculture we're creating here. That's the counterintuitive life we're living here. We're, we're dwelling on the Word of God. We're letting His peace rule in our hearts. We're worshiping together and singing hymns together, and we're being taught together. And this is where God would have you, yourself, your identity. God wants you here to be transformed by His Word and His community so that you can flourish. You can flourish in this kind of community unlike any way you could possibly imagine being able to flourish in the empty, disembodied, individualistic, digital culture out there in the world. You will shrivel and die on the vine out there. But God has called you here, into this community. And that's what we create. We attempt to create at Lakeside together. We're doing this together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the mirror that we can hold ourselves up to, hold our whole culture up to, so that we can have the scales removed from our eyes, so we can have the, the, the deceit and deception lifted from our minds, so that we can see what is actually going on, and then, Lord, to be able to conform ourselves to this beautiful community that you've called us to, what Paul describes here, with forbearance and forgiveness and compassion and kindness and above all of these things, almost like an overcoat put on over all of those things, put on love. Wow, I like that better than the metaverse. And Father, I just pray that we would have the authenticity and the transparency and the humility and the submission to be ourselves here not carefully curating our lives, not touching up all the blemishes in our life so that nobody sees anything birthmark or any 
balding patterns or anything else. We can just see each other untouched up and still be received in love. That's where you have called us to flourish. We pray by your Holy Spirit that that community would be embodied here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.